Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have a word of prayer. We need to have a few moments of silent prayer first to make sure you're in fellowship, ready to uh, study, ready to focus on the study of the Word, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we can be here this evening just because it's important to gather together. Our gathering together encourages each other just by our physical presence, but above all, we're encouraged by the truth in your word, that as we study your word, whatever the area may be, we know that ultimately these, all of these passages tell us that you are in control, you are working out your purposes in human history, and that no matter how uncertain, no matter how confusing, no matter how chaotic circumstances may appear around us, we know that we have a certain hope and we have a fixed rock in in you, and your word reveals to us that there is always a hope and there is always a future destiny for believers and that we can relax and be confident in that. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, may we again uh, understand these events as they're described for the future and see their significance for us in terms of our thinking today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we've studied many times in different different studies, different books, dealing with the subject of adversity, one of the great themes in dealing with adversity and in suffering that has been voiced by believers from the earliest days down through all of the ages up through and into and through the, the tribulation period is what do we why is it that that the evil seem to prosper and those who do good the righteous suffer and why is it that there doesn't seem to be real uh, real real justice for the evil doer in this life and that somehow it seems at times that the the bad guys get away with it and the good guys don't and that is a question that is even plagues those who are the martyred. Martyrs is pictured in Revelation chapter 6 during the uh, fourth or the fifth seal judgment as they're calling upon God to, to uh, bring judgment upon the earth dwellers, upon the evildoers, and God's reply is, it's not time yet. But what we see tonight in our passage is it's time. And that tells each of us that no matter what we see Going on around us today, the reason people seem to get away with it is just an extension of God's grace. And as long as we are in the church age, God will continue to extend his grace to the wicked, the evil, in many different ways. Part of it allows them to, uh, gives them enough rope to hang themselves, you might say. 
Another part of it is that it gives them time to, uh, God continually reaches out to give people the gospel, and then God will not bring judgment on evil until it's time to bring history to a close. And so as much as we desire that to to take place in our own lives and in terms of certain circumstances and situations, we have to understand from a biblical timeline that this will only take place at the end. But when it takes place, it will be a sure and certain judgment. Well, last time we got into chapter 14, and as I stated, chapter 14 is a summary chapter that comes back. We've gone through chapters uh, from 12, 13, and 12, 11, from the last part of 11 through 12 and 13, where uh, we have seen different things that are trends that are going on during the tribulation period and different individuals that are in power during the tribulation period. And now in Revelation chapter 14, we're coming back to the timeline. And by the next chapter, we are resuming the forward progression. We've gone through the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the midpoint of the tribulation. We saw the, uh, de- then we got into chapter, uh, 10 and 11 with the, with the, uh, with two witnesses and then the, uh, is, uh, the, Satan, the dragon pursuing the woman into the wilderness and then the, uh, then the two beasts and now the, this overview to sort of bring us back to, uh, where we are in the timeline, and then chapter 15 will begin to go forward. I pointed out last time that to understand chapter 14, it turns on three uses of the verb to see. In verse 1, John says, Then I saw, and behold, the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, with, and with him 144,000, having his Father's name written on their foreheads. And then in verse 6, he has a... He looks again, we have the second scene, then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell upon the earth. And then verse 14, then I saw and behold a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. So we looked at these last time, and we covered the the first three. And we've seen the issue of the 144,000 with the Lamb. These are the same 144,000 that were sealed at the beginning of the tribulation because they're called the first fruits. And I believe that they are uh, with the Lamb and that this indicates that they're in resurrection body. A lot of debate over that. Some people think they survive. Some people think they um, they are martyred during the tribulation period. That's the view that I believe best fits all of the evidence. Uh, we have six angels in this chapter, which shows the role of angels in overseeing the course of events in human history. And just as the, these angels are overseeing these events in the tribulation period, I believe that we can extrapolate that all throughout history, angels are the intermediate agents of God in uh, in his providential care and oversight in history. And I think we will be amazed when we get to heaven and realize how much angels were involved in maintaining the mechanisms of of the universe, everything from gravity to uh, planetary motion and 
uh, solar power. All of these things, have, I believe, will, will be seen to have been carried out by uh, by the angels. We also see a group playing accompaniment on harps in heaven with a new song uh, for those uh, for the 144,000, which only they can sing. We see that there is an angel, one angel who comes and proclaims the gospel. So there's an angelic evangelist. And also that the imagery that we see here and into chapters 17 and 18 are the background for the imagery of the uh, battle hymn of the Republic, as well as seeing the imagery of blood up to a horse's bridles. Now, we'll get to that uh, this time. So the first scene focuses on the Lamb and the 144,000 as the Lord is triumphant. It's a forward-looking scene. This is a proleptic vision. The writer is is looking forward from the midpoint of the tribulation. In some ways, this, this, this picture here in chapter 14 focuses for, on things that occur during the, tri- the last half of the tribulation and how they will, how they will end. In the second scene, in uh, verses 6 to 13, there are three angelic heralds, but there are four announcements. And so the first... First announcement is the angel that proclaims the gospel worldwide and warns of, etern- of impending judgment. I believe this occurs early on. It's a warning uh, that relates to uh, the gospel and of judgment so that everyone on the earth is prepared and understands what these spiritual issues are. Then in the second announcement, the announcement is that the kingdom of man, Babylon the great, is fallen, and this is in verse 8. And then the third announcement has to do with the uh, fall of the and ju- final judgment on the Antichrist and the beast, and, and all of those who receive the mark of the beast, and that they are destined for the lake of fire for eternity. And as I stated last time, I believe that these announcements occur early in the second half so that no one on the planet who takes the mark does it by mistake. It's understood it is a spiritual, uh, it is a spiritual oath of allegiance. It is an, a spiritual pledge of allegiance. This is why the mark of the beast is visible. Anyone can see it. And it is a method of control, uh, instigated by the, by the Antichrist. And the fourth announcement that comes from this is a Announcement of blessing on believers who are martyred in the tribulation period in Revelation chapter 14, 13. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, to the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. So this indicates a blessing for the believers who are martyred during the last half of the tribulation period. Then we come to the third scene, which is the focus tonight which depicts the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who brings judgment upon the earth. And what we see in this vision is three more angels. And so these three, these additional three angels are the intermediary agents that he uses to bring and to execute judgment on the earth during this horrendous period in the second half of the, of the tribulation uh, period. So we come to the First uh, section, first verse, verses 14 through 16, and we read, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, 
And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man. Now, I want you to notice that I have put the the in brackets because it's indicated uh, by the Greek grammar that Son of Man, even though the article is not there, it is a it is a has a definiteness to it. It is the Son of Man, and that phrase is found several places, as we'll see in the New Testament, referring to Jesus, where it does not have the article in Greek because of the way Greek grammar functions. So it still has that uh, definiteness. And therefore, Son of Man should be uppercase because it's a title for the Lord Jesus Christ emphasizing his humanity. So he's sitting on a white cloud having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand and another angel. So this is now the fourth angel in the passage. Another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to, to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, because the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, as we look at this, it's obvious this is a depiction and a summary picture of judgment. And we'll see two different pictures that occur here. One is depicted through the imagery of the harvest of grain, putting in the sickle here in verses 14 through 16. And then uh, the next is seen in uh, the depiction of the, uh, of the grape harvest. Uh, the grape harvest, and this comes in, in um, starting in verse, verse 17. So these are the two images, 17 through uh, 20 are the grape harvest, and the uh, 14 through 16 has to do with the grain harvest. So do, do, two different harvests are used to depict two different aspects of judgment during the tribulation period and the intensity of that judgment. So the first one that we're going to look at, first one that we're going to look at, uh, before we get into Revelation 14, 16, we need to look at the background for understanding who's doing the judging and why. What's going on here with, um, with the Lord Jesus Christ? Why is the Son of Man on this cloud. To understand this, we have to, first of all, look at the title, Son of Man, and how that is used. And one of the other verses in Revelation, where the title Son of Man is used, is in Revelation 1.13, where John is on the Isle of Patmos, and it is there that the revelation from Jesus Christ comes to him. Now, remember, when you read the title in Revelation 1.1, it talks about the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is not a revelation about Jesus Christ. It is a revelation from Jesus Christ. Because if you go through chapter by chapter and verse by verse through Revelation, this is not about Jesus Christ. It isn't even ultimately about his coming at the second coming. Because if you remember, the title that is ascribed to the one who sits on the throne is the one who uh, is and who was and who what? Is to come. 
And that refers to the Father, the one on the throne is the Father, not the Son. Many people make this, and it's easy to see why they make this mistake. They superficially read this, and it seems like the real climax of the book comes in Revelation 19 when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back at the end of the tribulation. But that's only the climax to that section of the of the book. Then you have uh, the millennial kingdom, and then the real climax is the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth when the Father... It takes up his dwelling upon the earth, and there's no need for, uh, and, and because of his presence, there's no need for sun or moon because there's light all of the time, and he is dwelling upon the earth and takes up his dwelling among men. That is the climax of the book, and it has to do with the Father uh, coming to be with men, dwelling with men, not simply uh, the Son. So it is a revelation from Jesus Christ as the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to the Apostle John in the first uh, chapter while he's on the Isle of Patmos and begins this series of visions given to John so that he sees the future. And so in that context, when John hears a loud voice like the sound of many waters, he turned around and looked and he saw... Uh, one like the Son of Man in the midst of seven lampstands, clothed with a garment down to the feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. And the garment of white indicates purity, holiness, righteousness, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. The same is true of the sun. There is no sin in the sun. And so the garments here picture a priest but also depict a judge and his functioning as a judge. That's related to the... Uh, gold band around the chest. Now, when did Jesus Christ become the judge? Well, for, to understand this, we have to go back to the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, in John chapter 5, Jesus gives a discourse to, uh, to the disciples related to, related to the fact that he is going to be given, uh, God the Father is going to delegate to him, judgment of the human race. And <clears throat> this begins in verse uh, verse 22. He says, um, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. This is one of those great Trinitarian passages that help us understand uh, the relationship of the Son to the Father and that why uh, and, and the role, the di- distinct roles within the Trinity, that the Father is not going to be the ultimate judge of all mankind for a particular reason, and that is because the Son, having successfully lived his life during the during the time of the incarnation without sin, going to the cross and dying on our behalf, and being in, incarnate as a genuine, true human being because of his identification with us. He is our peer, and we are going to be judged by a peer and not by the Father, but by someone who is truly human, yet without sin. And so in John 5:22, uh, we have the summary statement that the Father judges no one, uh, but has committed all judgment to the Son. And then in John 5:23, we read that... All should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Again, indicating equality of person between the Father and the Son, that the Son is full 
uh, deity, 100% deity, undiminished deity, and should receive the same honor, the same reverence, the same respect as the Father. So he says that all should honor the Son just as they honor honor the Father. Now, when he uses the term Son here, the question we should ask, is he talking about the Son of God or Son of Man or Son of David? Those are the three key Son titles. And I think here he's talking about uh, Son of God, but he shifts because he shifts specifically to Son of Man when we get uh, down to verse 27. So he's talking to uh, about himself as the Son. Uh, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That's the, the sending of the Son by the Father obviously takes us back before the Incarnation, and so this brings into focus more his deity than his humanity. Remember, when you have these terms, Son of God, Son of Man, Son of, uh, that those terms, Son of God and Son of Man, focus as adjectives. Son of God means he's God. Son of Man means he's fully human. Uh, Son of David is the only of those titles that really relates to his his background, his heritage, his ancestry. The other two terms focus on uh, characterizing who he is. This was a typical idiom in Hebrew. If you were a murderer, you were called a son of a murderer because you had the characteristics of a murderer. If you were a fool, you were called the son of a fool. Uh, so this, is, this has to be understood in this kind of an idiom. In verse 24, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Now, there's something very interesting because he's using, he's nuancing the word judgment here in a negative sense, in the sense of condemnation. And the word that is translated judgment is indeed translated condemnation in other other passages where it talks about there is now no condemnation to those who believe in Jesus Christ. So there's a lack of consistency in how that word's translated, but that's the idea he has here is that those who believe in Jesus have eternal life, and there's not going to be condemnation for us in terms of the of eternal condemnation. Then in verse 25, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, uh, the hour is coming. And here we have the use of this phrase, hour, in the same way we have it a couple of times in our passage in Revelation 14, where it is, we, we would say the time is coming. It's a nonspecific use of the phrase hour. It's just the idiom of the language. The time is coming. It's just speaking of a nonspecific time. And most assuredly, I say to you, the time is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Now, what does he mean by that when he says, you know, the time is coming, and now is? Uh, he's talking about the uh, the immediacy and uh, of his his coming, and the uh, the fact that he will be coming in a uh, he's still offering the kingdom to them. It's in the early part of his ministry, and so there is this uh, orientation to that, that if they accept him, then the kingdom, of course, would come, and this would be a present reality, the, the end of time. Verse 26 we read, For as the uh, Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. 
notice that this depicts the distinction in roles in the Trinity. They are equal in every aspect of their character, equal in power, equal in intelligence, equal in wisdom, equal in righteousness, equal in eternality. But the Father has a role. He is the authority. And the Son has a delegated role as the Son. And so uh, the Father grants the Son to have life in himself. Earlier in John 1, we read in him was life, and that life was the light of man. So it, it seems to be related to his humanity that that is this granting of life to him. Uh, based on John John 1. And then verse 27, and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Now, so that last phrase is causal. Because he's the Son of Man, because he is truly human, God has delegated the authority to Jesus to be the one to execute judgment at the end time. So human beings are going to be judged by a peer at in the end time. And then verse 28 we read, Do not marvel at this, for the hour, or that is the time is coming, in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. This speaks of the, just generally in terms of end time judgments. We know that there are different judgments, I mean different resurrections. There's a, a rapture. Those who are dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in, him in the clouds. And then we have the resurrection at the, of Old Testament saints at the end of the tribulation period. And then we have the resurrection of the dead uh, unbelievers at the end of the millennial kingdom. So there are different resurrections, but, and, but all of them are judged. The judgment is related to the Lord Jesus Christ. So they'll come forth, those who've done good to the resurrection of life, those who've done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now, in context of John, the, the resurrection of life is not, the good is believing that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and the evil is rejecting that. So you have to understand those terms in, in light of the context of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels. And then in verse 30, Jesus said, I can of myself do nothing. He's not an independent authority. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I don't seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Now, he's been delegated judgment. So when he appears to John on the Isle of Patmos, he appears as a judge because that is his role in Revelation. His role as the head of the church is to judge and evaluate the church. So the first, uh, I mean, Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 3 focus on the judgment, judging of the church and the evaluation of the church. And then in Revelation chapter 4 through 19, we have the judgment on the world system and the judgment on the earth dwellers, those who have rejected the grace of God. And then we have, that concludes with the judgment on the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan, and the fallen angels. And then the end of chapter 20, we have the great white throne judgment and the judgment on those who have uh, never trusted in the gospel, the unbelievers. So Revelation is a book about judgment and how evil is ultimately going to be judged 
and condemned at the end time. Nobody is going to get away with evil. So in John chapter 5, just by way of summary, we see that Jesus is presented as both the Son of God, fully God, and Son of Man, because he identifies with us, because he has a true human nature. He is our peer, and we will be subject to peer judgment. As the um, as God, as the Son of God, he has all of the attributes of deity, and as the Son of Man, he has all of the attributes of humanity. And as a man, therefore, he is fully qualified because he lived without sin to judge human beings at the end of time. So that takes us back to our passage to understand what's going on in Revelation chapter 14, verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. Now, the first thing we should note is the color of the cloud. It is a white cloud because it emphasizes, again, purity. Just as he was dressed in a white robe, he is sitting on a white cloud, emphasizing purity, emphasizing righteousness, and that that qualifies him to judge. It, it should be understood to be a literal cloud, just as we think of Jesus coming in the clouds, the clouds are in the atmosphere, and so this is a picture of Jesus uh, immediately involved in the events on the earth, sitting over the earth as the one who is overseeing the judgment uh, upon the earth. He is, it says, I looked, behold, a white cloud on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, indicating he is the Son of Man, he is Jesus, having on his head a golden crown. Now, the first thing you think of when you think of Jesus wearing a crown, you think of, well, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. Well, that's not what's pictured here. This is not a diademos crown. This is a stephanos crown. And a stephanos crown is given as an award for victory. Jesus had victory over death and the resurrection, as stated in both 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and in Hebrews chapter 2, Verse 7, and so this qualifies him to be the judge. So that is the purpose of the crown. The golden crown is that is a sign of his qualification as the judge. And in his hand there is a sharp sickle. It's, but he's not judging yet. He's just holding the sharp sickle. He's waiting. What's he waiting for? Well, what did Jesus say? He said he doesn't know the time, the hour, the day when he's going... It is only the Father knows the time, the hour, or the day of when that judgment will come. And so he is there prepared, ready, waiting for the signal to initiate the judgment. And that comes in verse 15. And in verse 15 we read, And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap. He's been waiting. He, had, he did not know the time. So this fits with previous revelation in Scripture. Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Now this is a 
very interesting uh, verse because it pulls together several different threads that go back to different sections er, revealed earlier uh, in the Scripture. This is another angel, just indicating another of the same kind of these angels that are participating in executing the judgment on the earth. And he comes out of the temple. Now, the temple is the heavenly temple of God that we have seen earlier. This is the dwelling of God. This is where God the Father is sitting on his throne in heaven overseeing the judgment. This began when he made the scroll available to the Lamb. The Lamb took the scroll out of his hands, began to open the seals, Jesus Christ carrying out those those judgments. But the last time we saw uh, we saw this the temple was in Revelation eleven nineteen. Now what I want you to do is hold your place right here in Revelation chapter fourteen. And we're just going to turn back a couple of pages to Revelation chapter 11. Now remember, Revelation chapter 10, just to give you context, in Revelation chapter 10, we started this break in the action. Up through chapter 9, we have the seal judgments, then the trumpet judgments. There's a couple of different shifts and vantage point from heaven to the earth. Then in chapter 10, there's the mighty angel that shows up with the little book, and John eats the little book, and it's it's the judgments, and this depicts the judgments that are coming toward the end time, as I stated when we went through that section. It was, what, what did I say? It was sweet as honey in the mouth. Why? If you remember, because people on the earth, the prayers of the saints have been, please execute judgment, finally. Judgment's going to happen. It's sweet, but then when it is seen as to how horrible it is and the extent of that judgment, it's it's almost revolting. It is a time of horrible violence and bloodshed on the earth, which is the result of sin. This is why uh, when John took the little book and ate it, it was sweet as honey in his mouth. When he uh, ate it, it became bitter in his stomach. And this is related then, the angel said, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. That becomes a theme in the next four or five chapters as we looked at all of the different things that are happening. Then chapter 11 talked about the two witnesses and the earthly temple. And those two witnesses are uh, martyred. Then they rise. Then there's the earthquake. And then we come down to a heavenly scene at from verses 15 through 19, when the seventh angel blows a trumpet. Now, that blowing of the trumpet is the beginning of the last series of judgments that are the bold judgments. Now, we don't start the bold judgments until we get into the next chapter, next next Tuesday night. But in the... so the, the bowl judgments cover the last part of the tribulation, but they don't start like right after the midpoint. There's a pause because you get these other little judgments that come in that are mentioned here in chapter 14 and some other things that are taking place that lead up to that. But as the seventh angel sounds his trumpet, it announces the culmination of God's judgments on the earth and the 24 elders fall on their face and worship God and sing praise to him. And then at the end of that chapter, we read, Then the temple of God was opened 
in heaven, and the ark of the covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. Now, what comes out of that temple is this angel. It is, and that's the point. He's coming from the throne of God with the announcement, I've got the order now to execute the final judgment. And so the sun is, is depicted here as sitting above the earth waiting for the, the order in order to begin the judgment because he, only the Father knows the time, the day, the hour, and so forth. So the temple of God is then open. Uh, or verse 15, rather, another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap. Now in, the, in verse 14 we were told that this is a sharp sickle. The reason we have the emphasis on it being sharp is because that emphasizes the severity of the judgment and the certainty of the judgment. You would rather, uh, when, when you're cut with a sharp knife, uh, it cuts deep and it's painful. And sometimes afterwards, sometimes you don't always feel it right away, but then all of a sudden you realize that you just almost cut your finger off and then the pain comes in. Now, when the angel comes out and says, put in your sickle, it's not an imperative. Some people have thought that because the angel is giving an order to the Son of Man, that the Son of Man must be not be Jesus. But it's not an order in the sense of a superior to an inferior. It is the relaying of the order uh, from the throne of God to the Son of Man to now begin, uh, to now begin the, the judgment. Uh, the reference for the fact that the Son does not know the day, hour, or, or neither do the angels is in Mark 13.32. Mark 13.32. So this relates to the final series of judgments, the bold judgments, and the final half of the tribulation period. And so verse 16 simply and... Uh, quickly summarizes uh, summarizes the action. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. There's more to cover in 15. Okay, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come, the hour has come literally, the hour has come, the time period has come, uh, for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Now, some translations may say fully ripe, and that really captures the idea better than ripe. When something is ripe, it's time to pick it and eat it. When something is fully ripe or overripe, it's past time. And, it, and that's, the, that's the meaning of the Greek word here. It is zorino, which means uh, when the fruit has dried up, it's become overripe or withered. It is and it emphasizes the fact that God has given man more than enough time to respond to him in grace. Now, there's a, some debate. You'll read some people or hear some people who think that this harvest is something positive. This is the harvest of believers. That's affected by primarily by somebody's general uh, view of prophecy. If they uh, are not a premillennial dispensationalist, then they would see this as the harvest of believers, and then in the the second judgment here, the judgment related to the to the uh, uh, vineyard, that that judgment would be the uh, judgment of unbelievers. But what where you see the difference is the this word ripe. Uh, 
Uh, Zerino is used seven or 16 times in the New Testament, and in not one of them does it have a positive sense. It talks about a withered hand or a withered leg or uh, other aspects like that. In Matthew 13, 6, uh, 21, 19, Matthew 13, 6, and 21, 19, and 20, Mark 3, 1 through 3, uh, John 15:6, the the vine that is uh, not producing is cut off and withers up. It's a negative. Everywhere you have this word in the New Testament, it's a negative. So the fact that this um, this this harvest, the fruit of this harvest, is ripe, indicates a negative. This is overripe, and so it is time for finally time for judgment. And then the um, then now we come to uh, verse 16, so which is just a very simple summary. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now the verb there, it's important to note the tense and the voice there. It's an aorist tense which simply summarizes the action. So this is a summary of really what's going to take three, about three years, three and a half years to cover. And it's a passive voice which indicates that that um, the earth receives the action of the judgment. And Jesus is going to use, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to use these intermediate agents of the angels in order to bring about this judgment. So the first judgment has to do with this overripe harvest, which is literally a dried and withered harvest, and this depicts the inhabitants of the earth as now withered, lifeless, no longer productive as human beings, and no longer of value, and that they are fully ready for judgment. Then we get in verse 17, we're going to come to the next judgment, the next image of the judgment, which has to do with the uh, grapes of the vine, and they de- uh, depict something, a uh, slightly different, but in the first, it's important to notice that the that the word for ripe pictures them as being overripe or or withered, whereas with the grapes, they're going to be fully ripe. They're going to be at the at their prime, full of juice, ready to be uh, to be harvested. So, verse seventeen. Then another angel came out of the temple. Notice the origin coming out of the temple. The source is. The holy just, just, justice of God, the supreme court of heaven. The, then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. He also having a sharp sickle, indicating the severity and the certainty of the judgment. And then verse 18, and another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle. That's the angel that was just mentioned in verse 17, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Now this introduces this whole imagery of the gathering of the grapes and the mashing of the grapes and the uh, uh, getting the juice from the grapes and all of this depicting judgment with you have the grapes and the red juice from the grapes. It is a, a picture of blood. And so that's the imagery here. When you have the uh, people mashing out, walking around in the uh, vat with the, uh, with the grapes, mashing them, they get just grape 
red grape juice all over them, and that is that picture of the splattering of blood. And that's the imagery here that gets picked up, especially in verse uh, verse 20. But a couple of things we ought to note here. First of all, the angel comes out from the altar. Now, we've had this a question that's come before, just what altar is this? Is this the altar, uh, the, the bronze altar? But remember, the bronze altar is the place of sacrifice. The place of sacrifice, I believe, is the cross. So I don't think we have a bronze altar in heaven. We do have the altar of incense, and the altar of incense is depicted in the uh, in Revelation chapter 6. So just hold your place here and turn back a little bit to Revelation chapter 6. And in Revelation chapter 6, and this all is important to, to make these connections, Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, we have the fifth seal. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held, and they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? What altar are they under? This is a prayer. The altar of incense is the place of, of the ascending smoke, which depicts the prayers of the saints. So they, they're praying. The altar where prayer takes place is the altar of incense. And then you come over and connect this to what happens in Revelation chapter 8 at the um, uh, interval between the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments. And there we have another angel, verse 3, then another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar. What altar? Altar of incense. The censer that is spoken of there. I mean, the, excuse me, the, yeah, the censer that is spoken of there is a censer that is brought uh, with the, carrying the incense, stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which is before the throne. So what's the prayer? The prayer goes back to understanding that fifth seal judgment prayer. This is a prayer that God would finally bring judgment upon uh, upon the wicked. So the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand in verse 4. And then in verse 5, this is where you get the drama and the action. The angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. Didn't we see that somewhere else, that same phraseology? This happened when the temples revealed the end there of chapter, uh, chapter 11. So this is, is a prelude to, to judgment. So here we have, back going back to uh, 1418, we have this other angel comes out from the altar who had power over fire. That would be the angel we just read about in 8.4 that's related to the fire of the incense and the altar of incense and the prayers of the saints calling upon uh, the Father to bring judgment upon the wicked. And this is the beginning of the answer. It is now time. Back in chapter uh, chapter uh, 6, it wasn't time. It's not time. Wait a while. Now it's time in Revelation 14, 18. So this angel comes out who had power, power over fire, cried out to him who had the sharp sickle, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for the grapes are fully ripe. So what we see here is this whole depiction of judgment 
built on the imagery of the wine press. Verse 19. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it to the great wine press of the wrath of God. So you have tremendous imagery here of the gathering of the grape harvest where the grapes are, are ripe. They're full. They're, they're, they're just about to burst. Uh, they're so full of juice and all of the grapes are brought into the two vats. Two vats are used, an upper vat and a lower vat. In the upper vat, they fill it with the grapes and then the workers will stomp out and mash the grapes and just get juice all over them so they they're just covered with the with the red juice and then the that juice flows down from the upper vat to the lower vat which is then where it is collected uh and then taken to uh, to make the wine so the picture here is of the angel as one of the harvesters taking his sickle and going through the vine of the earth in order to uh, harvest the grapes. Now, what is going on here with the vine? This gets us into some tremendous imagery that goes all the way from the Old Testament through the New Testament. The vine is a frequent image throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, it's used of Israel. Passages like Psalm 80, uh, verse 8, where it talks about the, the Father bringing Israel like a vine out of Egypt. And a vine is, the purpose of the vine is to produce something. And it, it's a picture of production and of fruit. And so in that image of the vine, you have uh, image related to productivity, uh, you have imagery related to um, related to blessing and related to growth and all, all of these kinds of things and the production of a person, the production of a culture. And so you have passages like Isaiah 5, 2 through 7, uh, Hosea 10, 1, many other passages where the vine is used to depict Israel. Then in the New Testament, Jesus uses the vine to uh, depict the production of the believer and that is in fellowship with him in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. No one can bear fruit unless they abide in him. And so the key for us is to understand that, not, not to try to identify the vine everywhere is Israel or the vine everywhere is the church. People try to do that and it gets them in trouble but to see the vine as a picture of production. And production can either be from the sin nature and produce a carnal worldly culture, all of the ideas and values and philosophies and religions of that carnal uh, worldly culture, culture, or it can produce that which comes from the Holy Spirit, that which is honor, honoring and glorifying, uh, glorifying to God. So the vine's production is stated, the vine here is, is stated to be the vine of what? Of the earth. Now, how is this phrase, the earth, used in Revelation? Is the earth a good place or not? We have earth dwellers. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? These are the people who never respond to the gospel all the way through, all the way through the tribulation period. You have the second beast. The first beast comes out of the sea. The second beast comes out of the earth. So the earth is not a good thing. The production of the earth is not a good thing in the book of Revelation. This is human culture that is produced in the book of Revelation. So uh, produced by the, by the vine of the earth. And so the angel puts his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth. That is all of this 
the, the cultures, and it, throws, and it's thrown into the wine press of the wrath of God. This is the execution of judgment on the world civilization, on worldliness, and the cosmic system. Now, to go further with this, we have to go back into the Old Testament. There are three key Old Testament passages that give us a clue as to what is going on as the background for this, uh, for this imagery. And the first that we'll look at is in Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3, verses 13 through 16. Back in the Old Testament, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Uh, Joel's part of the, it's the unused portion of your Old Testament. Joel chapter 3. Now, in Joel chapter 3, we're going to get a clue as to the when, what, and where of this particular judgment. Verse 1 says, Behold, in those days and at that time when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them. So the, the when is at the time when the Jews are restored into the tribulation period and a judgment that takes place in the valley of Jehoshaphat. So that's the orientation here. That is the... Uh, the judgment of the nations, the sheep and the goat judgment that occurs at the end of the tribulation period. Uh, where? It's at the Valley of Jehoshaphat. There's some debate as to where that is. Most people will identify the Valley of Jehoshaphat with the Kidron Valley. But there's others who identify it with the victory Jehoshaphat had over the invasion of, uh, I believe it was the Ammonites and the Moabites down in the Valley of Bercha. Uh, which is about 15 miles south of Jerusalem, just outside of uh, Bethlehem, not far from where David fought Goliath at the Valley of Elah. But it's somewhere central in central Israel, somewhere close to Jerusalem, and and uh, even though it's not clear exactly which valley it is, uh, that's not necessarily uh, germane to the interpretation of the passage. And then the what is that this is that final, the judgment of the nations as it is brought to a conclusion at the end of the tribulation period. So you skip down in Joel 3 down to verse 12 through 16 and we get the imagery from the wine press. Verse 12, let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Now these are the people in the nations. This isn't you know, corporate national judgment. These are the people within the nation. Put in the sickle. Sound familiar? This is where we get the imagery in, in Revelation. Put in the sickle. For the harvest is ripe. Go, go, Come, go down. For the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. The idea, again, is that God has given them a lot more time than uh, necessary in order to deal with them in grace and allow them uh, time to respond to to the gospel and respond to him. Then we come to verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. That term day of the Lord meaning that, that judgment time of the Lord on the people. And then verse 15, the sun and the moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness the Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. So this goes on to depict this end-time event with the great uh, catastrophes that occur at the very close of the tribulation period. So we see, that again, the 
in in verse uh, 13, the two vats, the vats overflow, has that same imagery that we have in Revelation chapter uh, chapter 14. Now the next verse to look at, just turn back a, a ways to Isaiah. Isaiah 63, another very important passage dealing with uh, end time judgment. Isaiah chapter 63. The first part of the verse. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? See, we've gone over this before. This is when Basra is in that area down near Petra, which is where the Jews will escape, those saved, regenerate Jews who believe Jesus when he says, when you see this sign, flee to the mountains. So they're going to flee down south across Judah, across the barren deserts there, across the Jordan, I mean across the area south of the Dead Sea, over into that uh, horrible, uh, rough country out uh, south of Petra. And it is there that they will call upon the name of the Lord. That's about the second or third phase in the battle, in the return of the Lord and the, and the campaign of Armageddon. So Jesus then returns there. There's a slaughter of the one army of the Antichrist that's sent down to destroy the Jews in Basra, and he just wipes them out, and he comes with dyed garments. See, that's that picture of all that grape juice splatter all over his garments. The blood from the battle uh, stains his garments. The one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, uh, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. The question, why is your apparel red? And your garments like the one who treads in the winepress. Verse 3, this is the response of, of Jesus. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. The blood, Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. So this is that imagery there. And then the last passage to go to is a short passage in Jeremiah. Turn over one book to the right to Jeremiah chapter 25. And this deals again with judgment. And the Lord says to Jeremiah, prophesy against them all these words and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He will roar mightily against his fold. He will give a shout as those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. This is an end-time event. A noise will come to the ends of the earth, for the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He will plead his case with all flesh. He will give those who are wicked to the sword, says the Lord. Again, he treads them like grapes. So this brings us to the concluding verse of the chapter, and the winepress was trampled outside the city. So this judgment is outside of Jerusalem. Blood came up out of the winepress. The winepress pictures the battle. The winepress is the, is the battle zone of, of this campaign of Armageddon. It's not just up in the valley of Esdralon, outside of Megiddo. Har-Megiddo is the name for where we get Armageddon. That is just a small area. I believe that's the staging area. This is where all the troops of the armies of the Antichrist are gathered. But it is the wine press outside of Jerusalem that is depicted here, uh, that, that blood came out of the wine press, and it should be translated not up to the 
horses' bridles. It is the Greek preposition akri, meaning uh, to, or it means uh, uh, has the idea sort of as far as, and it indicates that there's blood splatter goes that high. I mean, it's just the imagery here is just of a bloody, violent period that extends for 1,600 furlongs. And 1,600 furlongs, a furlong is, um, Akri has the idea is as far as the horse's bridle, so it splatters everywhere for 1,600 furlongs. A furlong translates the Greek word measurements, a stadium. And a stadium was about 607 feet. That would give us a distance of 183.9 miles or about 200 miles. Now, remember, I've told you this many times. When you describe the land of Israel, what's the? how do you describe the extent of the land of Israel? From where to where? From Dan to Beersheba. How far is it from Dan to Beersheba? You want to guess? 200 miles. That's what's going on here. It's saying the, the whole area is just going to be turned into this violent battle zone that is going to be so bloody because the Lord Jesus Christ and those with him are going to destroy the armies of the Antichrist, and it is going to cover the land from the furthest point in the north to the furthest point in the south. No area will be untouched. And this concludes chapter 14, which, as I said, just is a foreshadowing. This is this is, just gives us an idea of what is coming up and is going to be given more detail as we get into the coming chapters. Now, next time, we'll cover chapter 15, which is going to introduce the next series of judgments, the eight plague judgments, I mean, the seven plague judgments, seven bowls, and we'll get into that next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to get into uh, this overview of judgment. The judgment is certain, and everyone needs to be aware that at some point we will give answer to you for what we have done with Jesus Christ, whether we have accepted him as our Savior or rejected him. And this depicts the fact that evil will not run continuously, but there will be a time of final judgment that will be absolutely horrible, time of tremendous violence because of the horror that evil brings. And the only way to end it is in this violent manner. Father, we pray that you would give us a desire to communicate the gospel to those who are not saved, that they may escape from this wrath that you will bring upon the earth and that they will have eternal salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.